December 2023. Welcome to Muse News, the BCMA's monthly museum sector news podcast. Each month, we recapped some of the latest breaking news from museums, galleries, and heritage organizations across BC and beyond. My name is Leah Patterson. Thank you for joining us today. In this final broadcast of the year, we are resharing our top stories from 2023. Lorenda, Ryan, and myself have each picked out our favorite stories, and you'll hear them all one more time today. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of these segments for a visit from a jolly old friend. Honored properly. Protocols put in place for Indigenous exhibit at Vancouver's Science World. BC artist Rosie Johnny Mills' first exhibition went above and beyond her wildest expectations. The Haida Cowichan artist, who always thought her first exhibition would be with her late father, created small porcelain pots in honor of those who went to residential school for an exhibition at Science World in Vancouver. I created all these little pieces with all the love I have for my dad and all of our relatives that survived, the ones that didn't, and the ones that are still at those schools, she said. The exhibition took so much from me, and I was just emotionally and mentally exhausted by the time it was done. As an intergenerational survivor, Johnny Mills was told about the unmarked graves and the residential school system by her father, and it's something she thinks about every day. It's the residual vicarious trauma, childhood trauma, and PTSD that's been handed down to me that's not something I resent, but something I do my best to approach with love, said Johnny Mills. After putting everything she had into the work, it was picked up and out of her hands. But when Elia White, a Haida Simchen content developer at Science World and fellow intergenerational survivor heard about the pieces coming and what they meant, she reached out to Johnny Mills offering protocol and ceremony. I've worked at several powwows over the years and was exposed to a lot of artists who taught me how to work with art in an Indigenous context, said White. I was so grateful to be able to honor Rosie because she put so much work into it. You can feel it when you go see them. It's very powerful. It's very moving. Though it was not part of her job description, having only been at Science World for three months, White knew that implementing protocol was important to do because of how much Indigenous communities have lost. When anything like this happens, especially when it's related to residential schools, I'm very protective of it, said White. I'm very aware of the impact it has, and I want to make sure that it's honored properly, as it should be, because people don't really. White wanted to make sure staff at Science World were aware of how important Johnny Mills' art and the work like hers is. She talked with them about instilling protocols, ensuring everyone wasn't touching the art, and if they had to touch it, that their energy was good, an important element of working with art in Indigenous culture. Basically, if you want to host our culture, that's what you have to do. And no one questioned it, said White. Historically, not only has Indigenous art not been respected, but neither has Indigenous culture. So when Indigenous people are in these everyday positions, acts like what happened between White and Johnny Mills can continually happen and begin to slowly heal decades worth of mistreatment. Having someone who understands what my work means, understands what to do for ceremony, and having an Indigenous person in an important position at Science World was just monumental for me. Monolithic, legendary, said Johnny Mills. To have my art honorably and culturally received, reciprocated, and to actually have this meaningful connection is huge. 
For White, it was also a teaching moment. She was able to have open conversations with Science World about what should be done when she's not there and how they should treat Indigenous work in the future. And now, Elia is the one that puts them to bed every night and wakes them up every morning, and she's continuing the ceremony for their time at Science World, said Johnny Mills. The exhibition is part of Squaw Chais Artists in Residence program, and Johnny Mills's work is featured among several other artists. It's available to see at Science World until February 10th, 2023. Newhawk Nation celebrates return of totem pole from Royal BC Museum. Just over three years have passed since hereditary chiefs traveled to the Royal BC Museum to seek the return of the pole, a second one, and other artifacts. Eagle Down floated in the air outside the Royal BC Museum on Monday morning as members of a First Nation from the Central Coast readied a totem pole to come home after more than a century in the museum's collection. The totem pole was hoisted out of the museum window by a crane and lowered to the ground, where it was unwrapped in front of Newhawk people, some of whom had traveled from their territory near Bellacoola to welcome the totem. Newhawk hereditary chief, Snook who also goes by Derek Snow, said it brought tears to his eyes watching the pole leave the museum. I can see a lot of hearts are lifted today. People are happy, Snow said. The pole was carved in the mid-1800s by Louis Snookyaltwa, Snow's great-grandfather and one of the last gifted spiritual carvers in the Newhawk homeland of South Bentonic, or Taliomi. Snow, who spearheaded the effort to repatriate the totem pole, has said his great-grandfather's spirit is still in it, and can't be at rest until the pole returns to Newhawk territory. After it came out of the building, the pole was moved to lie next to the Mungo Martin Longhouse, adjacent to the museum, where women from Newhawk performed a ceremony to bless and awaken the pole. Rubbing eagle feathers on the wood, they danced around the totem while others drummed and sang. Newhawk member Bill Talio called it a dream come true for the nation to see the pole being returned home and a huge healing step. Speaking to the crowd inside the longhouse, Snow said the totem pole is the nation's storybook. It tells us who we are, he said. It contains the story of each river, mountain, and creek on our territory. The pole was taken from the Newhawk homeland south of Bellacoola when people were forced to relocate after a smallpox epidemic around 1900. It was initially a longhouse entrance pole before being moved to a gravesite. The museum reportedly paid $45 for the pole, which was brought south around 1912 and housed in the museum's collections. Following two days of ceremony at the Mungo Martin Longhouse, the pole will be transported to New Hawk Territory via Williams Lake, where a convoy will meet the truck transporting it to complete the journey to Bellacoola. The nation plans to keep the totem pole in the school in Bellacoola for about a year while working on a replica. The original is intended to return to South Bentonic in May of 2024, while the replica will likely remain in the school, Snow said. Just over three years have passed since Snow and three other hereditary chiefs traveled to the museum to request the return of this totem pole, a second one, and other cultural artifacts. Frustrated by slow progress, the nation initiated a lawsuit in February 2022. Those gathered inside the longhouse erupted into applause and cheers when Snow was handed an envelope with a letter from the museum acknowledging the pole's return. The letter, signed by the museum's CEO, Alicia Dubois, said the museum understands the process of returning the totem pole has not been an easy one, and apologized for the difficulties in reaching this point. The Royal BC Museum did not make anyone available for an interview on Monday. 
Murray Rankin, BC's Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation, who attended the ceremony, with MLA's Jennifer Rice, who represents the North Coast, and Lana Popham, Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture, and Sports, called it a long overdue day. While the nation is celebrating the return of the totem pole, they're still waiting for repatriation of other items, Newhawk elected chief Samuel Schooner said. What we witness today is reconciliation, and that's what we need to see more of. We need a house for our artifacts so we can start bringing them all home, he said. A sawmill storage house in southeastern BC was home to North America's first gardwara, researcher says. A researcher in BC says that the first Sikh temple in North America was likely established at the province's East Kootenai region. Colleen Palumbo, who studied old census records as part of her research, says the Gudwara was established in a repurposed storage house at a sawmill in Golden, BC around 1905. Palumbo has researched the Gudwara's history since retiring as executive director of the Golden Museum and Archives two years ago. Her research is part of a Punjabi Canadian legacy project program to support local museums' research on Sikh Canadian history, and her findings were published in the Golden Museum's website in February. They are featured in the Hack the History traveling exhibit set up by PCLP, a program co-organized by the University of Fraser Valley and the Royal BC Museum. Palumbo estimates about a dozen sick men in Punjab's forestry industry came to Golden, a community in the Rockies about 200 kilometers west of Calgary, around 1902, to work at the Columbia River Lumber Company sawmill. The Gudwara was torn down in 1927 after the sawmill closed, Palumbo said, and it would be many decades before the town's sick community would come together to have another temple. Palumbo says the Gudwara was a safe haven for early sick immigrants with limited English proficiency during a time of strong anti-Asian racism. She points to the federal government's implementation of a South Asian head tax from 1908 to 1919, meant to discourage immigrants from bringing their wives and children to Canada. Satwinder Kaur Baines, director of the University of Fraser Valley's South Asian Studies Institute, says racism has also translated into challenges to preserve Sikh history in Canada. She says the colonial institutions didn't value artifacts of South Asian history as much of those of white Canadian history, and Sikh immigrants did not see the importance of keeping records of their lives in Canada. Quote, the laws of the land were very racist, and people didn't really think they would live here for very long, said Baines, who is sick. Perhaps this is why the records are so lean and there are no photographs here. Rare blankets made from fur of extinct woolly dog on display at North Vancouver Museum. The Salish woolly dog was historically sheared once a year for its thick fur. For thousands of years, the Salish woolly dog resided on BC's southwest coast, providing their owners with companionship and hair. Now, blankets woven from the fur of this extinct dog are on display at the Museum of North Vancouver until early July. The woolly dogs were part of a Coast Salish culture that was erased during colonization, says the museum's Indigenous cultural programmer, Sinaquila Weiss. It's time to share their story now, as it's been pretty silenced for so long, said Weiss, who is from the Squamish First Nation. The dogs, which date back thousands of years, were small to medium-sized with white fur of a woolly texture, somewhat resembling the modern-day breed of the Spitz, according to Weiss. The dogs, known for their calm temperament, lived in longhouses or other types of dwellings with their owners and usually had their own beds. Quote, they were really our best friend, our companion. They would be the only animals coming into our homes. 
According to a 2020 study, their diet consisted almost entirely of seafood fed to them by their owners. The woolly dog population diminished when colonizers made contact and introduced cheaper sheep's wool from the Hudson's Bay Company. By 1900, they had virtually disappeared, with a few rare sightings on reserves up to 1940. Just as much as these dogs provided companionship, they played an important role in local culture and economy. Once a year in the spring, the dogs were sheared. Their fur was then cleaned and used to make rare and treasured ceremonial robes, often mixed with other materials like mountain goat wool, feathers, and plant fibers, according to the museum's website. This was one of the forms of our wealth, our weaving, said Weiss. As Salish people, we had a really strong connection to the woolly dogs. The museum will exhibit two of these blankets alongside other woolly dog artwork by Salish artists, including Chase Gray, Sarah Jim, and Elliot Whitehill. Weiss began working on this exhibit about two years ago when she discovered the museum had a woolly dog hair blanket in its archives that hadn't been publicly displayed in over a decade. The second robe on display is on loan to the museum by textile collector Terence Loychuk. Weiss said Loychuk was researching woolly dog hair and found the blanket in a thrift store in Langley. After more than seven years of planning, development, and renovation, I'm reporting live from the opening of the Chinese Canadian Museum on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples in Vancouver, British Columbia. More than 300 guests, political representatives, and community partners have gathered here on the eve of the 100th anniversary of the signing of the 1923 Chinese Exclusion Act to celebrate this momentous opening. We go now live to board chair for the Chinese Canadian Museum, Grace Wong, with opening remarks. Many of our stories and history uh, are, will be shared in the Yips uh, Curie Room and in the documentary film Paralastic on all of this I can assure you that the Chinese community is going to honor all of this history. Like all museums, our primary mandate is one of public education. The importance of educating all Canadians history, culture, and heritage of Chinese Canadians and their many contributions to the growth of this country should never be underestimated and certainly not undervalued. It creates a foundation to both inform our present and shape our future. But establishing a brand new museum is a huge undertaking, I would say. I'm very sincere in wanting all those who supported us. And you know, just share a little bit of the journey that brought us here. Uh, as I mentioned several times, the corporate lady started in 2017 with then Premier John Corrigan announcing a commitment to establish the Chinese Canadian Museum. The Chinese Canadian Museum is open to the public as of July 1st, 2023. The first museum on Vancouver Island dedicated to Punjabi Sikh history is now open. The Paldi Historical Museum, which recently opened in one of the rooms of the Paldi Sikh Temple located west of Duncan at 23 Paldi Road, explores the history of Paldi, an historic migrant town founded in 1916. 
the town story was the subject of the latest Heritage Minute production. At that time frame, when racism was so rampant, it was a safe haven for a lot of people, said Seth Winder Beans, an associate professor and director of South Asian Studies at the University of Fraser Valley. Japanese, Chinese, Punjabis, and Europeans all worked and lived together in Paldi, initially called Mayo Siding after Mayo Singh, the town's primary founder. Singh, along with about 35 other shareholders, established a successful company mill town despite two devastating fires early in the settlement's history. By 1927, Paldi's population had grown to 1,500, of which about 150 were single working men, according to the research from Historica Canada. The town had its own school and post office and a Japanese temple that doubled as a community hall. Paldi residents hosted week-long volleyball and kabaddi tournaments. By most accounts, the community was thriving until the mill closed in 1945 in the face of economic downturns, the forced dispossession of its Japanese-Canadian population, and the establishment of bigger mills in the region. Many in Paldi chose to remain and commute to working in Honeymoon Bay and its surrounding communities even until the late 1960s. The last of its residential buildings were torched in 2005 as fire suppression practices for local fire departments. No one lives in Paldi today, though its Gudwara, a place of worship established in 1919 and last rebuilt in 1959, still stands and remains an active gathering place. For us, Paldi is a living history. We don't have a lot of living artifacts or spaces that we can go to in Canada and we can say, we were here, Bain said. We built BC too, one log at a time. It's important to respect these early settlers, even with the understanding that they themselves were displacing First Nations people at the time, Bain said. The opening of the Paldi Historical Museum is significant for Dave Mayo, the Paldi Sikh Temple's president, who grew up in Paldi. Creating the museum was a long-standing wish of his mother, Joan Mayo, he said. We pushed for it and got it all done. Much of the research showcased in the museum comes from Joan Mayo, author of Remembering Paldi, a history book that was the culmination of decades worth of research. Joan Mayo, now 92, visited the museum and was just amazed, Dave Mayo said. Cowichan Malahat Langford MP Alistair McGregor, who attended the opening, said the museum is a tribute to the enduring legacy of Sikh immigrants. For over 100 years, the Cowichan Valley has drawn strength from the Paldi community's rich history of inclusion and respectfulness, McGregor said in a statement. I look forward to the Paldi Historical Museum standing as a testament to the pioneering spirit and resilience of the Sikh immigrants who settled in Paldi and played a vital role in the growth of our region. Jellyfish was terror of the sea 500 million years ago. 500 million years ago, the ancient shallow sea in what is now British Columbia teemed with unusual creatures unlike any alive today. But there's one you'd recognize if it swam by a jellyfish much like those that pulse through today's oceans. Scientists say fossils found in Canada's Burgess Shale are the oldest known creatures that we would recognize as jellyfish, and they were likely the terrors of the sea during the Cambrian geological period. The jellyfish had a bell about 20 centimeters high, as large as a loaf of bread, making it one of the largest creatures at the time, said Joe Maziuk, a PhD student at the University of Toronto and the Royal Ontario Museum who helped describe the species in a new study published Tuesday in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. The rectangular shape of the bell was similar to that of deadly, venomous, modern-day box jellyfish that live in northern Australia and the Indo-Pacific waters, suggesting that the ancient jellyfish was also a fast and powerful swimmer. 
Its bell was fringed with more than 90 tentacles, resembling those of the harmless moon jellyfish. A couple of the fossilized jellyfish, among nearly 200 unearthed at the Burgess Shale, have been on public display as part of the Dawn of Life exhibit at the Toronto-based Royal Ontario Museum since the exhibit first opened in 2021. But this week, a nameplate was added underneath, Burgessa Medusa Fasformis, their new official scientific name. The name means the Burgess Shale Jellyfish with a ghostly form, Maziuk explained. Specifically, we thought it looked like the ghost from the game Pac-Man. The new jellyfish species is the first ever found in the Burgess Shale, a 505 million year old fossil bed found in the mountains of BC and considered by UNESCO to be one of the most important in the world. That's because of the amazing preservation there of fossils of a huge diversity of animals from the Cambrian, a time when animal diversity exploded. World-renowned artists open gallery in small community of Enderby, BC. If you visited the Museum of Modern Art in New York or other renowned art galleries worldwide, there's a good chance you've encountered some of the installation artworks created by Janet Cardiff and her husband, George Burris Miller. After a decade of having their creations shown across the globe, this Canadian duo has finally found a permanent home to exhibit their art in BC's shoe swap region. The Cardiff Miller Art Warehouse took five years to come to fruition. It opened on January 29th in Enderby, a community with around 3,000 residents located about 80 kilometers north of Kelowna. The couple bought a repurposed 50-year-old space situated at 507 Granville Street, which was formerly the showroom and warehouse of a furniture store. Quote, When we came across this space, we just fell in love with it. It's two buildings with 9,600 square feet each and high ceilings, said Cardiff. The museum features four installations, including the marionette maker created by Cardiff in 2014. This piece was displayed in various international galleries, including the Reña Sofia Museum in Madrid, and features a full-scale vintage caravan housing robotic characters, including a silicon mannequin modeled after Cardiff herself, creating a haunting atmosphere. The couple has promised to provide more of their artwork to the museum collection in the future. They also plan to expand the museum by adding a library and a cafe, making it a welcome space for tours, especially for school children and university students studying art. The museum is currently open Friday through Sunday every week from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. with a standard admission fee of $10 and a reduced rate for students. BC's new fossil emblem, an 80 million year old marine reptile called Elasmosaur. British Columbia has officially designated a large, fierce-looking marine reptile that swam in the waters off of Vancouver Island 80 million years ago as the province's official fossil emblem. The government adopted the long-necked, sharp-toothed 12-meter elasmosaur as the fossil emblem on Thursday, adding to the list of provincial symbols. The designation follows a five-year recognition effort by paleontology enthusiasts and a province-wide public poll in 2018, where the elasimosaur received 48% of the votes. Tourism Minister Lana Popham says in a statement that the elasimosaur designation raises awareness that BC has a fossil history worthy of celebration and stewardship. The first elasimosaur fossil was discovered in 1988 along Putledge River on Vancouver Island marking the first fossil of its kind to be found west of the Canadian Rockies.
The Elasimosaur lived on the coast of BC, dating back to the Cretaceous period. Other official BC emblems include the Pacific Dogwood, Stellar's Jay, Spirit Bear, Pacific Salmon, Jade, and the Western Red Cedar. What fun to recap these new segments from the year. I'd now like to welcome Mr. Santa Claus to the show. Ho, ho! Hello, BC Museums Association members. It's me, Santa Claus, otherwise known as Old Saint Nick. I wanted to share my favorite museum story from the past year. Once upon a time, there was a very good museum in Smithers called the Bulkley Valley Museum. A museum curator named Kira Westby partnered with a local baker named Meg Roberts to make cookies using recipe books from the museum. Yum, Santa loves cookies. And here is why Santa loves the story so much. Instead of keeping the proceeds, Meg and Kira have donated the sales of the cookies towards two smaller museums in their region. The Bulkley Valley Museum is taking orders for cookies and will have them available for pickup on December 18th. Museums partnering with their community to help smaller museums. Sounds like someone is definitely on Santa's good list this year. Ho, ho, ho. Over to you, Leah. Thank you all for joining us in 2023 and following along with Muse News. You, the listeners, are truly the reason we continue to make this show, and we appreciate you listening every month. Come back in January and join us on Muse News. Happy New Year, everyone.